We, uh, when you wake up with the sound of rain just dropping out on your, your house, you're like, wow, what's this day going to hold? So, uh, wonderful Christmas. What, 70 degrees today, they say, is a high somewhere around there? And uh, that's why, that's a real Dixie Christmas, isn't it? I think last year's it was tornadoes, wasn't it? Uh, makes me long for the days of Kentucky, where we had a nice cold Christmas. Uh, not too cold, but cold, you know. It was really Christmas. So, Well, listen, we are going to go ahead and get started this morning. Uh, I know there may be some that trickle in because of the rain, and uh, we'll probably have a lower number here this morning for Bible class because of the rain. I know that some people are a little slow getting out in it, and I don't blame them, uh, but uh, I'm very glad to have you with me this morning, uh, and glad to have you at Dalreda, and uh, hopefully we can open up our Bibles and study some more, and and uh, gather something today that will help encourage us. Any, uh, I've got a couple announcements I'll go ahead and make. Um, Janet Routon, which is Charles, uh, who was in the hospital last week for his heart. Janet went in for an asthma attack on Friday, I believe. Wasn't that right, honey? Friday, and she is still in uh, Jackson Hospital, so please keep uh, Janet in your prayers. Uh, she and Charles, have uh, they visit here quite frequently, and uh, even though I haven't placed membership, they're pretty regular, and they're visiting here, and we want to remember them in our prayers. That's Monica's uh, uncle and aunt, so uh, remember her Aunt Janet in your prayers as she hopefully will go home tomorrow. They're keeping her there for some observation for the, the asthma attack. Um, she has it pretty serious. Um, Kara Cannon's father, Brother Earwood, Earwood, right, uh, is in the hospital in UAB for severe pancreatitis. And I know a lot of y'all know Brother Earwood because he's here usually almost every weekend, it seems like. Uh, they come down here and they help out with, a, I know, with Webb during the weekends. And he's here on Sundays. He's always an encouragement to me. Uh, I appreciate his kind words. But he is in there with severe pancreatitis. And uh, UAB, so we definitely need to keep them in our prayers. I know that that is not a fun thing to go through, and it can be very serious as well. So he's in a lot of pain, and y'all please keep Kara and her family in your prayers. As again, assuming she'll be going back and forth to UAB a little bit, uh, this time for her dad versus uh, Webb. But uh, y'all keep them in your prayers during the holidays. It's no fun uh, to have this going on during the holiday season. Uh, any other announcements or um Updates or prayer request this morning. All right, well, let's start off class with a prayer. If you would, let's bow together. Heavenly Father, our God Almighty, we are thankful for another day that we can gather together as your family, that we can open up your word and study from Joshua this morning and hopefully gain some knowledge and some encouragement from that passage and from what you've given us there. Lord, we are thankful for this church. We're thankful for this congregation at Dalreda that we can have together as a, a very supportive and encouragement while we live our life on here on this earth. And Lord, we ask you to be with us, be with uh, all those that may be traveling during this holiday time period and, and keep them safe. Lord, bring them back to us safely. And Lord, be with all of us as we uh, go throughout the holiday season. May we stay safe. May we enjoy time with families. And may we always um, stay true and do the things that would bring honor to your name. Lord, we ask you to be with those that are sick and those that have lost loved ones, especially we ask you to be with the Routon family and we ask you to be with uh, um, 
Kara and, and her family, as her dad's in the hospital at UAB, be, be with Brother Earwood and help him to uh, be able to overcome the pancreatitis and to be able to be treated and to be able to recover. Lord, may he be spared as much pain as possible as he goes through those treatments and as they go through whatever procedures they need to for that. Lord, we ask that you watch over us and care for us. Please make sure we do the things that we should do and discipline us when we don't. Lord, we are thankful most of all for Jesus. And we love you and we love him for coming, for giving up his life on Calvary for us and our sins. And it's through his name we pray. Amen. We ended last week with uh, the, um, the idea that as you look in Joshua chapter 2, that you see there that not that this mission that the spies had ended up being exposed. And we ended off uh, last week talking about kind of the geographical ways and the reasoning and rationale, probably how it was exposed. There's no indication in scripture that there was any insider information or there wasn't any kind of a double agent spy or whatever that told them about the fact that Israel was going to be sending a couple of spies to Jericho to, to check out that, that area. Uh, more than likely, it can be attributed to the, the, the massive size of Israel and the fact that obviously they were camped about five miles on the other side of the Jordan River uh, from uh, where Jericho was. Jericho is about five miles from the Jordan River, so you have about a 10-mile gap there between the city and the camp of Israel. And obviously, uh, we know there's some knowledge there, and we'll get into that a little bit more as we go through this lesson of what Israel could do and, and how Israel could be involved. And, and so more than likely, Jericho probably had some individuals looking out for uh, Israel to see if they saw anybody there. They were kind of on high alert and possibly uh, even saw these two spies come into the city of Jericho. Maybe they heard rumors on the street. Maybe they... They heard uh, someone give them some kind of a tip that two strange men had come into the city and so that they wanted to follow up on that. And, and somehow, some way, uh, the mission was exposed. And we see in, Je- in uh, Joshua chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, that there was uh, somewhat of a knowledge. And the king of Jericho was trying to locate these two individuals, uh, men from Israel, uh, that were there to search out their land. So somehow it was exposed. We don't necessarily know how, but we know that it was. And we see as the story unfolds in Joshua chapter 2 that these two men had come, of course, into Jericho and had ultimately ended up at Rahab's house. And so we see that the exposure came after they had gone to her house. It could have been, as I said, there's some people there in the city that were looking and, and re- noticing people. I, I guess we all kind of know how that is. I, mean, I have a neighbor across the street. Um, she will call or text me or message me on, on Facebook. Monica and I get Facebook messages from her all the time if there's a strange car in our part in our driveway. Uh, I actually appreciate that. It's hilarious because, you know, we'll be out of town. We try to alert our surrounding neighbors, say, hey, we're going to be out of town for a couple of days, you know, just want to let you know, keep an eye on the house, you know, call us or text us or message us if something were to happen, you know, or the house, you know, if the house is on fire, obviously we want to know about it. Um, so... But she, of course, takes that to the next level, which I'm, I'm grateful to her for doing these things. She's our neighborhood watch, and uh, she messages and says, Hey, John, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a car in your, your parking lot. And sure enough, we knew, you know, we just didn't alert her that, Hey, my sister-in-law's coming by the house while we're going out of town, you know. But she'll message us. She'll, she'll say, Hey, this is out of character, out of sorts. I had one day 
where she messaged me at work and I had forgotten to bring my garbage can up on, on, by my house after the garbage man had come. And she said, hey, John, do you want me to get my husband to, to get that, that garbage can and put it up by your house? You know, I see it sitting out there. He doesn't mind doing it. Um, and so, of course, you know, you got those kind of neighbors like that who kind of keep their eye on things, kind of know what's going on. And in some ways, it's kind of creepy, kind of worries you out a little bit. But in other, other ways, in other respects, it's actually somewhat comforting. In this crazy world we live in, if it's someone you can actually trust to know they're looking out for you, that's a good thing. It may have been that case in Jericho. Uh, you had some, uh, I wouldn't say busybody, but you had some uh, very uh, aware uh, neighbor of Rahab maybe that noticed these two strange individuals who looked like Israelites to them. And somehow told their neighbor or told so-and-so, and it got back to the king of Jericho. And they said, hey, there's two people that kind of look like they're Israelites. And the king thinks, you know, I heard, you know, Israel's over there. You know, some of my guys said, hey, they, they may have had some people that come over. They weren't really sure. They kind of lost track of them, maybe. Uh, let's go check this out. And so somehow, some way, their mission was exposed. Thankfully, it didn't compromise the mission And they were able to keep going forward. What we really see as we go further, not only was there a mission that was accepted by these two spies, uh, the mission was exposed uh, as they went to Jericho, but also the mission was supported. And I love this passage of scriptures, and this is what I want to focus on probably of this story a little bit more so than I've done the other passages, because it really digs in and tells us about Rahab, who becomes a very important person in the historical scheme of things. And we'll get to that in a moment uh, with respect to who Rahab is and what she actually helped do. But when you think about the overall concept of, of uh, what happens in Jericho, it's not just a victory that they have. And they do have the victory. We'll get into chapter 6, a couple lessons from now, and we'll get into that victory that they had uh, when they got to Jericho and, and in fact conquered it without having to fight one battle. <laughs> You know, it's phenomenal, and that's a story of us as kids remember the walls of Jericho and marching around seven times, you know, and blowing the trumpets, and, you know, that's the story we remember. A lot of times we'll talk about Rahab, and Rahab's one of those little side notes along the way as we go toward uh, marching around the walls of Jericho, but Rahab is really a very interesting person, I believe. Uh, She is someone who is seen, I believe, as as one of the, the women of the Bible you can really look to as someone as an example of faithful action and an obedient action and someone who really stands out in the chronicles of all the Old Testament as being one of these, the ladies, uh, one of the women uh, that you can kind of salute for her faithfulness. And when you see that exemplified in Hebrews, and that's why I'm saying these things, I believe she's, she specifically has pointed out in the New Testament as being one of these heroes of faith. But, but Rahab is really kind of shown throughout uh, chapter 2, really verses 4 through 21, looking at her part in all of this. Uh, yes, later on down the road she's saved. Yes, her family's saved. But how did they get there? Why were they saved? And some of us look at this passage and we know the, the basic gist of this story, but I want to delve a little deeper as we look at this passage. And I want to look real quick uh, at this story. I want to read verses 4 through 14 real quick, and then I want to get into a little bit of discussion about Rahab. So if you would, look at your Bibles with me. Joshua chapter 2, verses 4 through 14. Uh, and as we've already talked about, the first three verses, of course, are the, the report of the king, verses 2 and 3. The king comes in verse 3, trying to find out when uh, uh, or who these men are that are at her place. And verse 4, it takes up uh, here. Rahab's response in verse 3, I'll, I'll say that to begin as a, somewhat of a prologue to verse 4. Uh, Rahab's response to the king of Jericho uh, 
that he said, you know, bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land, is what the king said in verse 3. And then Rahab in verse 4, there's one of these three-letter words. Um, you may want to underline it, circle it, maybe in your Bible. Uh, but it is a comparative word, but. It says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Again, verse 6, and I have this one underlined. I have it circled in my Bible. It says, but, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, uh, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and the earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord. Since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And so the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. It's kind of interesting to reread this again, I think, uh, in my later years, uh, to kind of see more of the undertones of spirituality that are here than you probably garner when you're a child. You know, as a child, you, you hear the story of Rahab, and these two spies come to Jericho, and, and Rahab hides them. And we don't get into the lie too much when we're kids, because that would really cause kids to really kind of freak out, I guess, about, oh, Rahab's lying Uh, We just talk about Rahab hiding them. So we'll get to the line in just a second. But, you know, Rahab lies to the king and his men, um, hides them up on the roof, lies to them and says, hey, they've escaped. If you go quickly, you're going to catch them. I mean, it's not just saying, hey, they're not here. (laughs) You know, she actually says, hey, they're not here and they left. And if you go and and pursue them, you can overtake them. (laughs) You know, uh, Rahab's pretty smart. Uh, and diverting the, the men of Jericho to go and, and run after a ghost of, uh, of these two spies to try and divert their attention and make them go the other way. It's just not that, though, to me, that rings so true and tells me about who Rahab is. And I think as we discuss uh, Rahab a little bit more in depth here, I want to look a little deeper at what this uh, passage of Scripture really tells us about who Rahab is and really tells us a whole lot more about why he, in Hebrews 11 and, and, and over in James that she is commended for her faith. 
And I think that really tells you even more by looking at this passage. It means so much more than just the fact that she was someone who hid the spies when they came. And, and then she hung that scarlet rope out the window and, or scarlet cord. Uh, real quickly, I want to go over a couple of things that we do see here about her personality. Rahab's personality, of course, it says there she's a prostitute. If you did a little digging and did a little bit, uh, a little, I guess, looking at some of the other writings around the time frame, um, the description of Rahab is somewhat twisted. In fact, Josephus, the writer, uh, tries to make her out to be more of just an innkeeper versus a prostitute. So I don't know if any of you have ever heard that or not. Uh, you, you may have heard that. I will tell you the problem is that's categorically incorrect when you go and look at the Hebrew word and then you especially compare it with what she's called in the New Testament. She was a prostitute. There's no doubt about it with regard to the wording that's used there. I'm not really sure why Josephus minimizes it in his historical writings, except the fact that she is listed as part of Israel in the lineage and the genealogy of Christ. And so a lot of times it was probably downplayed because of that. So when you flip over to the New Testament and you see, well, Rahab is part of the lineage of of Jesus Christ. Well, we can't have someone who's a prostitute as part of that lineage, can we? Uh, And so you see people maybe downplaying it because of those reasons. But uh, It's just wrong. It's just wrong. When you look at the words and what the words mean, uh, the literal translation would have been a prostitute or a harlot, uh, someone who actually sold themselves for money. Uh, and so you see that she is described as someone who a lot of us would probably not think as being someone who we want to be around or someone who would be a, a welcoming person. In fact, she may be someone who was kind of looked down upon in that society. It also kind of explains why uh, they may have been kind of looking at her house or her area uh, to look for strangers who may come to the city. Uh, You know, her house would have been a place where strangers may come, obviously for devious reasons and uh, immoral reasons. But it would have been a way that that it would have been one of those places that would have been a high alert uh, for those who may be strangers to the city uh, that they may come to that area because it was much more of a welcome area uh, for those kind of people who were not natives of Jericho. Uh, You also see, as I said, uh, her house. Her house was on the city wall and uh, she lived up in the wall in verse 15, which we didn't read that verse yet. But uh, chapter 2, verse 15, describes where Rahab uh, lives. In verse 15, of course, she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. So Jericho's wall, of course, surrounded the city. Most archaeologists and most historians would, would point to the fact that ruins of Jericho that had been uncovered seem to indicate somewhat of a double wall uh, on the exterior of the city. And this double wall would allow there to be residences and areas within the two walls that you could actually live. And so Rahab, more than likely, her house was in that interior area of the wall between the double walls there that were used for protection, but also used for people to live in. And so Rahab's wall, uh, Rahab's uh, house, her residence, her place was right there on the wall. Obviously, easy access for her to let someone down the window, right, or out the, down the wall, because it would have been right there. Uh, it also talks about her house having a roof. More than likely, it could have been on the exterior part of the wall, where she had an area where she would uh, be able to put things. And as you, we read earlier, um, where she laid the stalks of flax, is verse 6. That's where she hid them up there on her rooftop. Uh, obviously, stalks of flax would have been laid out to dry, uh, they're on her rooftop sometimes, and, and that's what the reference probably there is, is that she had somehow gathered uh, stalks of flax, whether it was through some type of a, a gardening or farming exercise, or maybe she got it in return for something else. I don't want to speculate too much there with respect to that, but you, you don't know what, where she got the stalks of flax. She 
more than likely didn't have a rooftop garden, but uh, the idea of her laying them out to dry or laying them out for storage on her rooftop uh, would indicate that she got them from somewhere or something. And she was using and storing them up there uh, to, uh, to dry or to uh, use later on. Uh, the phrase laid in order on the roof, verse 6, indicates there that there was a, a, a common practice for her. Uh, to have those in that area there. But her house was uh, on the city wall. She lived on the wall. Also, we see in verse 9 through 11, which becomes the most telling area of this passage for me as an adult Christian, is her response. It's not, as I said before, it's not the fact that she hid them or it's not even the fact that she lied to the king and his men about their location. What is most telling to me now as I reread this story as an adult as someone who's not just a little kid doing a coloring page in class, is the fact here, as you read in verse, really 8 through 14, her response, her reaction, her um, pleading for salvation uh, that you really don't understand as a child. You don't understand uh, the complexities of all this. You don't really understand how great it is for her to respond like this. Look at this passage. Verse 8, of course, uh, before they lay down, she came up to the, ro- the roof. When she came up to the roof, verses 9 through 11 shows you what kind of response that she had to these men. Now, I want to remind you of a few things. First of all, Jericho was not near Egypt. I wish I had thrown up a map up here to to show you the distance between Jericho and Egypt land. Okay, there's quite a bit of distance, especially for that time period. Okay, it's not like you could jump on an airplane at that point in time and and jump scop from uh, Jericho to uh, Egypt. Uh, you know, and, and very quickly. Uh, it's, it's a long road. It, it's a long way. It, it would take weeks, if not a month, you know, to, to travel that time period on foot or on camel or whatever, however else, the you know, mode of transportation they had. It's not a close proximity. I remind you of that because of response about knowing what happened in Egypt. Uh, you think about that kind of a, a distance, And to me, this passage speaks really a little bit more clearly and a little bit more deeply to me. Because her response here is, I know the Lord's given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Verse 10, this is what she knew, or what she states that she knew. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water from the Red Sea before you came out of uh, Egypt, before you, whenever you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, uh, whom you utterly destroyed. Well, it's got two parts here. First part, we knew, or we heard, now this could just be like word on the street kind of thing, but it's enough to put a firm conviction in her. And I think you, as you read this passage, you can't help but see the firm conviction that she had. She literally knew what Israel had done. And not only knew what Israel had done, but knew that God was with them when they did it. They knew, she knew Israel could not part the Red Sea themselves without God's firm hand and power behind them. So they heard how, how the, the waters of the Red Sea were parted before them as they crossed over on dry land. And then she also heard the fact that they had conquered the Amorites, which if you read back, and we don't have time to go back to that story there, that was one of the first kind of fears that Israel had about going into Canaan is the fact that they had all these huge groups like the Amorites there. And when, when God punished them and said, you're going to be wandering for 40 years, one of the things that God showed to them and proved to them as they wandered is the fact that God was behind them because he helped them conquer 
these other lands and people. Brother Henry. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And Brother Henry's right. And one thing I did not point out, thank you, is the fact, yeah, remember, this was 40 years before, too, when they crossed the Red Sea. Uh, these are one of these tales that, that was told at bedtime to all these nations and these people about these people who crossed over the Red Sea on dry land and these waters formed like this big walls around them as they walked through the Red Sea. I mean, imagine that kind of, of course, we use it as a Bible story now, right? Our kids are enthralled with it. Next week, I haven't decided who I'm going to ask to teach for me next week. Uh, if, if any of y'all want to volunteer, please feel free to. Next week, we're going to be talking about the courage to go through a river, dot, 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 again. Because guess what? Next week, you're going to see, as you go into chapter 3, what, is, what does Israel do again? They walk through a river on dry land because a God parts the waters. Now, you know, that is an amazing feat. And it's one of those that I, I got a picture, and I don't remember who it was. Brother Verl, did you do Exodus? I don't remember who it was that taught Exodus. But I found, it was Tony Allen, that's who it was. He did a class on the Exodus a couple of quarters ago. And I found this graphic online, and it, and it was kind of really cool because it was uh, uh, the, the rivers and the waters of the sea, you know, separated up these huge towering, you know, walls of water on every side. And they had like cars and stuff driving through, you know. Uh, it was really kind of a cool image of kind of us, you know, being a, you know, the modern day Exodus and the kind of comparing what, what it might feel like for us to, to go through these waters. And, and to, to experience that, I think, would be phenomenal. If you were part of the million plus or whatever that had gone out of Egypt land and had gone across the Red Sea 40 years before this ever happened and had experienced that, I have a hard time understanding. This is what frustrates me with Israel. I have a hard time understanding how you can remember that episode and that experience, and then doubt your God. That would be enough for me. Go ahead. No, Rahab did, yes. I'm talking about Israel themselves. No, no, I'm talking about Israel. I have a hard time understanding why Israel would ever doubt God. Experience this. And that's what Rahab, that's what we have the parallel here with Rahab. Rahab heard all these stories. And I think you're right, Brother Jim. They were wandering around this area that, that was, I wouldn't say close to Jericho, but it was at least around Jericho, you know, at a distance. And more than likely, Jericho being a fortified city, a city with an army, or somewhat of an intelligent design and some type of a hierarchy there among the governing body. My guess is Jericho probably had scouts that saw this group wandering around and going conquering all these people around them. And thought, okay, is this going to happen to us? When are we going to get conquered? When, you know, this, this, they're going around annihilating people. Are we next? And that's really the, 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 the viewpoint that Rahab almost kind of tells us here is the fact that the people became so concerned that what's the phrase here? They have melted Away before you, verse 9. Later on, verse 11, she says it again. When we heard it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. That's amazing to me. Brother Josh.
No doubt. Huge. I agree. And, and the risk that she took speaks volumes about her character, speaks uh, volumes about her belief. I mean, why would you do what you did unless you truly believed something? And that's what you see here. She had heard the stories and had no reason to doubt the stories because of the response of everyone around her. They all lived in fear of Israel. They all knew their day would come. That hour would approach one day when they would be conquered by this massive country, more than likely. That these people would come to them and they would conquer them. Now, I don't think they envisioned how they were actually conquered. I, I'm not sure anybody did. I don't think Joshua had anticipated the fact that God's just going to make the walls fall down and they're all, you know, going to die that way. Uh, I don't think that was envisioned in Joshua's mind even until he was commanded to do it by God. You know, it's one of those things where you look at it and just think, how phenomenal is this? But really, you look at her even closer now. And you think, how faithful was she? It is not hard for me to say now that I, you know, for me to understand why she was included in Hebrews 11. It's not hard at all for me to understand that. Because her tremendous faith is rooted deeply into the actions of the Almighty God and those same actions that he was trying to use to Israel and make Israel faithful and obedient. It's the same actions. And instead of instilling that fear and obedience in Israel 40 years ago, 40 years later, Rahab had the courage Rahab had the faith. Rahab had the obedience. And that's what you see in this passage here, that ultimately, that Rahab exemplifies these things for us here in this passage. She knows who Israel is. She knows who they served. And to me, that's phenomenal. That is amazing. The way my four-year-old says it, that's awesome. That's awesome. It really is. To really think about this woman who had had no contact that we know of whatsoever with God of Israel, that had no contact with Israel whatsoever, but when these two men come to her, she realizes and the light clicks on, she knows who they are and she knows who that they serve. You also see with Rahab is that her family was a priority with her. And I think that speaks volumes of what what her character as well. Uh, You know, it's not just save me. It's please, pledge to me, swear to me by your God that you're going to save my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all of their families. You see, her thought process wasn't necessarily with self. And I think this kind of goes back, Josh, what you said is the fact that she really overlooked her own safety. She overlooked her own, uh, you know, self to look after the two spies and then ultimately to ask for her family to be saved from the horrible conquering that's about to occur she doesn't know how it's going to happen she doesn't know that 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 god's going to come and she's going to and god's going to just pretty much destroy the walls of jericho and people are going to die right and left and those that don't die from the walls are going to be killed and speared and cut and 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 annihilated per god's command she doesn't understand all that she just knows my my city's going to fall if you're here my city's falling and i don't want to go with them i want to be on your side instead of my side And I think that speaks volumes there about her is is the fact that she puts her family first, verses 12 through 13, imploring for them to be saved, uh, that if she helps them, that they will be saved. And then verse 17 through 18, of course, uh, you see the fact that it is actually committed by the two men that they will save them as long as Rahab follows their instructions and and agrees to do the things that that they have asked her to do, uh, that anybody that's in the household will be there. 
I think it's very interesting. You look there at verse 17 and 18. It's not just the fact she had a concern for her family, but evidently she had some type of influence over her family. Why do I say that? Well, verse 17 and 18 requires that they be present with her in her house and in her home when all this happens. If they're not there, guess what? They're not saved. It is a prerequisite. It is a requirement that they be there. Of course, you know, just I can think in my mind all the parallels we have with salvation today. <laughs> there are certain requirements, right? It's not just something that's a, a promise that's going to happen whether you do it or not or whether you do something or not. It's the same thing here. God promised via the two spies. The spies gave them, gave her their word saying, as long as you are here, and it says in verse 17 and 18 there, that uh, gather yourself into the house, your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your household. It shall come to pass that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. They have a choice. They can either follow you or not. And Rahab evidently had enough influence to make them stay in her house, to stay within her doors of comfort, to stay there so that they will be protected and saved. And Rahab was a woman that was seen Not only, I think, by us, by Israel, but also even by her own family as someone who was faithful. Someone who could be relied upon. And someone who could be looked to for sound guidance. Josh. Elevation. I didn't specifically read anything that ever referred to her being uh, tied to being a cult prostitute. That, the, 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 Josh makes the, the question, and it's a good point. Was there anything that in the studies that would indicate that, that she was a cult prostitute? That would go to indicate even further... Uh, the fact that she had left all these things behind because cult prostitutes in that day, and you're right, traditionally, uh, historically, were somewhat elevated, uh, both in power as well as in influence. Uh, and that may have gone to show maybe why she was able to influence them. It also would go to show uh, even more why her turning her back on her city and on her religion is such a wonderful and great thing. Uh, nothing that I read indicate that. But uh, I think it's a good question and a fair, a fair question and probably a, a possibility there uh, with regard to. Either way, what we see is there's some type of influence that she had among her family. Uh, and it's very interesting for me to understand that sometimes good people do bad things. And thankfully, I think she's a great example for us as you look at Hebrews 11, which we'll get to that. Well, we may not get to it much more deep, but Hebrews 11 obviously commends her for her faith. And what that means is she's commended, not, not for the things she's done before this happened, but this could have been very well that one turning point in her life that made her change what she did and change the, the, the bad things and instead made her follow that righteous path uh, as she became uh, absorbed into Israel. Uh, and it could have been that recognition, finally that light clicked. Maybe she couldn't do it culturally before. Maybe she was so confined because of her position or because she was so demeaned uh, because of the bad choices she had made previously that she felt like she couldn't make those changes before. Uh, so what we do see is that changes were made. Changes were made. Uh, the protection and the support she gave, we've kind of really talked about this, and I don't want to get too much into it. But uh, obviously she lied to the king. Verses uh, 4 through 6 show the lie that she actually gave. There's no doubt. Don't let people... Him, him haul around and talk about whether she lied or not. She lied. 
There's no doubt she lied. Uh, now, some people talk about was it a justified lie or not. Uh, and in fact, you know, you compare it to things such as in the New Testament. We shall obey God rather than men. So there's some type of disobedience you can give even civilly against the authorities if it, it goes against uh, what God has commanded. God's commands, God's way is superior to man's way. And so a lot of people will, will argue, and I think this is not a bad argument necessarily, but it's a fact she's, she's presented with two options. Am I going to choose Israel or am I going to choose Jericho? And in fact, when you choose Israel, when you look at the Old Testament, what are you really choosing? God. That's God's chosen nation. God is with Israel. And whether Israel's with God is another whole question. God is always with Israel. And so when you look at this presentation here that, that Rahab had this choice that she may have had, you know, God, Jericho. Well, obviously we see what she chose. She chose to be with God. And if she's going to choose to be with God, she's going to do what she can to protect God's people. Now, does that always justify a sin or a lie? I would say no. Was she justified necessarily in lying? No, probably not. Because if you really think about it, and Wayne, I'll get to you. If you think about it, what if she didn't lie to them? Does that mean that the spies would have been captured? We don't know. We don't know. I have full faith and confidence in the fact that these spies were going to be protected by God. God's providence would have probably allowed them to escape some other way. That's what we're told, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Look to those open doors, those open windows of escape. If we're faithful, God's going to protect us. We don't necessarily have to intervene and do something that we think's best. Now, Rahab did. I'm not going to necessarily fault her for it, but I'm also not going to exalt her for lying. That's not what she should have done. She shouldn't have lied. Nobody should lie. But in the end, her actions of obedience show her faithfulness and in fact, her actions, as James says, is what justified her. So what does that mean? Well, it means she wasn't in a right relationship with God previously, but her actions and her obedience afterwards would ultimately justified and made her right with God, even considering all of her prior and previous sins. By the way. No doubt, yeah, and Wayne brings up James, and that's one of the things that I, I was going to, her legacy, which oh, we're not going to get through all this, I need to hurry and get it done, but um, her legacy obviously is held up at, on a pedestal for us to look at and say, hey, we need to be like Rahab. Now, does that mean in every aspect of her life? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean we need to be a prostitute, does it? I mean, none of us would say that God's saying that. But James says, hey, she's justified by faith just like we should be. Be like Rahab. Well, how? Well, in, in the obedient, faithful manner that Rahab was, so should we be like. Just like that. We should take risks. We should, we should do things to stand up for the right side. Now, we need to make be cautious. We should always do what God wants us to do and being right. Uh, but what you see, of course, her, her support was not just the, the lying and the uh, diverting of the, the men of Jericho, but the, he actually, actually helped them escape. And in fact, even gave them kind of the game plan as to how to, to uh, get around them being found even after the fact. She said, you know, y'all go hide here, wait for them to come back, then you'll know that they're back in, and then you can go on the rest of the way and go back to Israel. And that's what they did. You see that later in chapter 2, verse 22, when they actually got up and they, they left and went the rest of the way. 
and went and reported to Joshua. Uh, Rahab, though, of course, has a tremendous legacy, I think. Her legacy, of course, is that she, first of them, primarily, she survived. And her family survived. And we see that later in chapter 6, verses 23 through 25. Verse 25 actually says Rahab survived and she's with us to this day. It's one of those verses we talked about during the introduction that kind of indicates the fact that Joshua was written around the concurrent time frame uh, that the, the children of Israel were and Rahab was still living then. So it could have been too far removed. Uh, you know, it could have been hundreds of years later. Uh, more than likely, uh, it was when uh, Rahab was probably older in age, but she was still living around them. They still told the story of Jericho to all the children and the grandchildren and great-grandchildren to tell them the story of how the people conquered the, the nation of Jericho. But, but Rahab survived the fall of the walls, and then she ultimately dwelt and was absorbed, really, among the children of Israel. You see also two other very important New Testament points. One is in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab is listed as one of the five women in the genealogy of Christ. Can you name the other four, just as a quiz point? Okay. Who? Ruth? Okay. I'm, I'm waiting. Y'all got to speak up now. Bathsheba? Mary? I'll give you a good one. All right, y'all got the fourth one. Fourth, fourth one. Y'all got me because I can't think of it offhand. I'm thinking, is it Sarah? I, th- I, I don't know if it's, huh? Tamar, yes, thank you. You're right, yes. Tamar is the fourth one, yes. Poor Tamar, she's so shoved to the side. Anyways, that's a good story too. Yeah, those are the five right there, thank you. Uh, Tamar was the, the fifth one. Um, so one of five women listed in the genealogy of Christ. To, to, and if you know anything about genealogies, study genealogies, you're going to know genealogies are really stressed as being this very important thing to the Jewish faith especially, where you came from meant something. It doesn't mean as much nowadays, you know. I mean, I, I think I can trace my genealogy to my great-grandparents, maybe. I mean, back then, though, man, they could trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve, you know. I mean, it's like you, you got to know that whole genealogy. Where you came from meant something, especially the Israelites. So, you know, the, the fact that she's listed among the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew speaks volumes about who she is and the importance that she had. Uh, her and Ruth, I think, are two of the most tremendous stories in the Old Testament dealing with the fact of, of their influence and uh, the way they kind of uh, led. And of course, they were only separated by uh, a couple of generations, actually, in the genealogies there. But anyways, the other prolonged uh, legacy she has for us is one we've kind of already talked about. Hebrews eleven thirty five. she's listed there among those in the great hall of faith. She's listed there among those who are the... The ones listed, lifted up on a pedestal. If you can imagine yourself, this great museum. Uh, if y'all have ever been to uh, University of Alabama, I've been to the University of Alabama, uh, you know, memorial type uh, uh, museum there, talking about all the greatness and the great players in the University of Alabama. I've seen the one at Auburn as well. You know, you got these kind of displays of all these people kind of exalted. Think of Washington, D.C. You got all these monuments right and left of all of our great leaders of our, our country. Well, in your mind, think if there's this, that there is a place, a museum that is as dedicated to those who are the living, faithful people. And Hebrews 11 are the ones who are included there in that hall of faith, so to speak. You're going to have Rahab's statue there. This woman who's from Jericho, who's non-Israelite, is listed among those of the most faithful, Abraham and Sarah. She's listed there among the Moses, 
and Noah, those men who we always look up as being this wonderful and incredible people and heroes, heroes of faith. You see uh, Rahab being listed there as being part of that. Real quickly, and if you've got to get up and get the kids, go ahead. But uh, what you see in the last few verses of chapter 2 is the fact that it's mission accomplished. Uh, these two spies had the courage this time, this go-around, to actually accomplish the mission that they were set out to do. Joshua had said, go spy out the land. They spied the land out. They came back, gave them the report. And what they found out was enough. And this is what they found out right here. Verse 24. I love this, this verse. So they said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Now, a little bit of homework for you. If you want to do a little comparative contrasting here, go back over to Numbers chapter 13, verse 31, and see what the spies said last time they went (laughs) to see these inhabitants. It's the exact opposite. And so what verse 24 tells us of chapter 2 is the fact that these people had learned their lesson. They had courage to follow God. They had the courage to be obedient. They had the courage to be faithful. And they knew... These two spies knew and ultimately told and conveyed it to Joshua, the leader, that when they went in there, these people would be theirs. This land would be theirs. And the whole reason is, is because they had already melted themselves away. They knew who Israel was. They knew what Israel was capable of. And they knew those things because of Israel's God. The one, the only, the true God. Everything points back to God. Everything points back to his power. Everything points back to his deliverance. Not just from Egypt, but his deliverance between, by anybody who goes up against them people. Next week, we're going to cross the river again. It's a different river. Same way, though. Pick up here next week. Thank you all for your all's kind attention.